Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Malcolm Keating, a host on New Books and Language, part of the New Books Network. Today we're talking to Andrew Ollett, who is the Neubauer Family Assistant Professor of South Asian Languages and Civilizations at the University of Chicago. And he argues in his book, Language of the Snakes, that Prakrit is the most important Indian language you've never heard of. In this book, whose subtitle is Prakrit, Sanskrit, and the Language Order of Pre-Modern India, Allat writes a biography of Prakrit from the perspective of cultural history, arguing that it is a language which challenges modern theorizing about language as a natural human development grounded in speech. Rather, he claims Prakrit was invented and theorized as a self-consciously literary language opposed to Sanskrit, but yet still part of the Sanskrit cosmopolis and not a vernacular. His book draws on unpublished manuscripts, royal inscriptions, poetry, as well as literary and grammatical texts. Uh, so welcome, Andrew, and uh, thank you for joining us at the New Books Network. Thank you, Malcolm. So as usual on the New Books podcast, to open with a brief autobiographical note about the author, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you came to be interested in pre-modern India, Sanskrit, and Prakrit? Yes, very happily. Um, I've noticed that there are usually a couple of programs of study that feed the the study of pre-modern India. Um, and one of them is classics, uh, classics in the sense of the study of Greek and Latin literature. Uh, that was me, basically. I started college... Um, I started taking Greek uh, when I arrived at, at college, and my Greek instructor was a historical linguist, and she would often bring in examples from Sanskrit to try to explain uh, the intricacies of Greek grammar. Um, it doesn't sound like a good strategy, but uh, it was a uh, compelling strategy for me. So I thought, wow, that, this Sanskrit language seems kind of interesting. <laughs> so I... Um, I started studying it and uh, joined up with the Sanskrit classes that happened to be offered at my university, Columbia University, and um, and then I I just continued my study of Sanskrit and you know eventually it took over everything else, um, and in fact my uh, uh, this project, the Language of the Snakes book emerges uh, pretty directly out of my uh, early engagement with uh, Greek literature in a sense that I had been studying Theocritus and um, Hellenistic poetry when I was an undergraduate. And I was fascinated by the literary languages that uh, Greek poets use. So they all wrote in Greek, obviously, but there are many dialects of Greek and uh Theocritus, who was a poet of the 3rd century BCE, used uh, a very particular kind of uh, Doric Greek dialect that in some ways recalled 
the early tradition of archaic Greek lyric, but in other ways seemed quite modern and managed to, and people had thought that uh, the, the language in which he wrote was meant to imitate uh, the language of the characters of the poems, uh, who were often cowherds and kind of common people. So there's a kind of rustic quality. And so I was working on this uh, question, trying to familiarize myself with the literature. And I happened to be taking Sanskrit at the same time. And I mentioned this to my teacher, Sheldon Pollock, who was also an ex-classicist. And uh, he said, oh, there's this uh, there's this language called Prakrit. There's this work written in that language called Septicai, Seven Centuries. Maybe you can do a comparative study and see whether the language choice in Septicai, Seven Centuries, is similar to the language choice of uh, Greek Hellenistic poets. Um, so that's what got me started on it. And uh, yeah, I eventually I wrote my dissertation on it, and here I am. Very interesting. Thanks. Uh, thanks for sharing that. So let's start with the basics then um, from your book. So it's about the relationship between Prakrit and Sanskrit in pre-modern India. Uh, most of our listeners have probably heard of Sanskrit, but maybe not Prakrit. Could you start by distinguishing between the different ways that the word Prakrit has been used historically? You mentioned three in your book. Let's start there and then we can get into the details. Sure. So Prakrit, um, yeah, it's in, it's an English word, I guess. You can spell it P-R-A-K-R-I-T, uh, but it, it, it comes from a, a Sanskrit word, uh, and the Sanskrit word is Prakrita. And w- what this word means etymologically is basic. Uh, so it's derived from another Sanskrit word, Prakriti, which means a base, uh, and so Prakrita is an adjective that means derived from the base or uh, basic. And Prakrita is used in Sanskrit to, uh, in a wide variety of senses. So Prakrita jana is a common person. Um, prakrita generally refers to the thing that is basic, that is under discussion, that is kind of normal. Um and it also designates a language um, and, you know, why precisely what this language is and why it is called Prakrit is the, um, are the questions that I was trying to answer in my book. Uh, but in modern scholarship, you'll see the word Prakrit used in a couple of different ways. Um, so one way is... Uh, is basically as a synonym for what I call Middle Indic. Some people call it Middle Indo-Aryan. And this refers to a uh, a particular stage of development of languages that are genealogically related to each other. Um, And they're genealogically related to Sanskrit. So uh, Herman Jacobi uh, made this point in uh, 1888, I think. Um, so he said that uh, there's this f- family of, uh, he called them Indic languages, uh, Indische Sprachen, um, but again, people call them Indo Aryan sometimes. And he said that they have three stages. The first stage is Old Indic, 
or Sanskrit. This is uh, his words. The second stage is Middle Indic or Prakrit. And the third stage is uh, New Indic or Pasha. So he basically takes categories that's, uh, that are modern linguistic categories that refer to the historical development of languages over time and equates them with, um, we would call them emic categories um, that are designated by Sanskrit words. So, so one very broad sense is that any language which is related to Sanskrit but is not Sanskrit um, is, is Prakrit. So, and this, I think, has been probably the more common scholarly usage. So um, Pali, for instance, the language of the Buddhist scriptures in Burma, Sri Lanka, uh, Thailand, uh, it would be considered Prakrit by some people. Ardhamagadi, the language of the Jain canon, is considered Prakrit by some people. Uh, yeah, more recently, the um, the language of the documents that have been discovered in northwestern India and um, in Pakistan and Afghanistan, uh, which some people call it Gandhari, uh, this would be considered a Prakrit as well because it is a Middle Indic language. In other words, it's uh, it's derived from Sanskrit or languages very similar to Sanskrit. Um, there's a different usage, a more narrow usage, which I uh, tend to follow, and that is uh, reser- so using Middle Indic to refer to all of these languages, Antamagadi, Pali, uh, Gandhari, whatever, and to use the word Prakrit uh, to refer to a specific uh, literary language or a set of literary languages that come to be used, say, around the first or second century of the Common Era and continue to be used uh, until, uh, well, un- until now. Um, and uh, and this is the usage that you will find, I think, in Oscar von Hinuber's book, Das Mittelindische im Überblick, uh, Middle Indic in Overview. So he uh, distinguishes Prakrit as a literary language from the Middle Indic languages more generally. And there's... Uh, yeah, there's an, uh, historically Prakrit has often been used just in opposition to Sanskrit to refer to any language that's not Sanskrit. Um, and uh, I think this is not really a common scholarly use, although some people like Herman Tekin have tried to rehabilitate it. But you'll find some sources that uh, use the word Prakrit in reference to languages that we would call something else. So for instance, uh, there's one or two inscriptions from Karnataka that use the word Prakrita to refer to Kannada, which is a language that's not related to Sanskrit at all. It's not a Middle Indic language. Same thing in Indonesia. Actually, the uh, one of the most common uh, terms for the old Javanese language is Prakrita um, in Indonesia. So... Um, so it, yeah, there's a there's a kind of terminological confusion that I survey in the introduction, but I think those are the the main right. uh, usages that predominate now. Right. So so then the question is, why is it important to understand what uh, Prakrit is in pre-modern India? So one of the things you suggest in your in your book is that it's a critique to some modern ways of thinking about language. So one of the things you might be interested in 
is who is this question about what Prockert is? Who is this an important question for? What can we learn from its answer? So maybe you can speak to some of the things you're challenging in this book. Sure. Um, yeah, I haven't really embarked on a critique of modern ideologies of language. Uh, <laughs> I had thought in the time of writing this book that other people can do that better, but um, uh, I'm still waiting to see those critiques come out. Um, but what I would offer is that uh, our common sense about language uh, is actually founded on a very specific set of historical experiences. So you look at the work of uh, Ben Anderson and Clifford Geertz, uh, many others, they've charted the ways in which language is enlisted as a very central category of social and political belonging, above all, belonging to a nation. And when I was doing my research for this book, I was astounded by the totally insignificant role that questions of identity, not just national identity, played in the imagination of Prakrit, uh, with the important exception of uh, gender, uh, which we might come back to. So in the book, I took as an example the framing that is offered by um sociolinguistics, uh, which some people have used to talk about Prakrit. And in a very blunt version of this framing, uh, what we do is we map linguistic variables onto social variables. So we say that this group of people defined by age, gender, religion, region, class, or whatever, uses language in this very specific way. But this framing almost totally fails to provide any insight about Prakrit literature or the circumstances of its production. So it was obvious to me that in Prakrit, we're dealing with a language of the imagination, a language that people chose because it put them in an imagined world where they could explore things like love, like natural beauty, um, sometimes uh, political order, and not because it indexes their own social location. So the parallel that I, the closest parallel, I mean, I started with uh, Greek in my training, but I think that the closest parallel in European historical experience is uh, the language of the troubadours. Um, uh, because this is a, a language that it became trans-regional within uh, a couple of generations. And it starting from its origins in the late 11th, early 12th century, it came to have a very large social base. So it included aristocrats like William of Aquitaine, um, commoners like Bernard de Ventadorn. And yeah, it opened up a space of the imagination that did not previously exist. Mm -hmm. So this sort of space of the imagination that you're talking about in your book, you're drawing on, on a range of sources to, to understand it. So you're looking at inscriptions, you're looking at poetry, you're looking at uh, Jain or Jaina religious narratives, what we might call today something like literary theory, the Alankara Shastra. So one, one kind of wonders, how do you think of this book in terms of uh, the, the kinds of disciplinary distinctions that we have in the, the modern era? Where does your book fit in there? Yeah, um, it's um, well. My I should start by saying that um, I was lucky to have this book published in a series called South Asia Across the Disciplines, um, 
And I think the idea of that series is that it would invite contributions that uh, think about um, questions, major questions about South Asian history, thought, um, and expression that um, that arise from a variety of, of disciplines. And so my training was mostly in, uh, well, linguistics uh, and uh, kind of historical uh, studies, literary studies. Um, other people are kind of more Hakka historians than, than I am. But basically, when I was writing the book, I was looking for sources that would tell me how people thought about um, Prakrit and about language, languages and language choice more generally. So I started um, by, this is also something that comes from my classics background. There's a, there's a classicist, uh, Inika Sluiter in the Netherlands, who I have asked her about this, but uh, she says that she doesn't know where this term comes from, but she used the term language talk, which refers to moments in a, usually in a literary text, sometimes in a documentary text, when the author will actually say, will, will reflect in explicit terms on the language that he or she is using. So uh, one example would be the uh, second, I think, verse of the of seven centuries, uh, where which begins with the words amiyam pa wakavam, prakrit kavya, prakrit literature is nectar. Um, so this is a very kind of explicit foregrounding of, of the language that uh, people are using. So I'm, I was looking at those kinds of that kind of language talk, which happens in literary texts, but of course it also happens in shastra, works of systematic thought. Um, and um, in inscriptions, it doesn't happen. Inscriptions serve a kind of different role in my argument. Um, but yeah, I, this, it was obviously not a project that was focused on uh, any one text or kind of text. Uh, and I'm very aware that uh, the coverage uh, of the, the sources in, in my book is uh, partial. We can get back to this, uh, but... Scholars of Jainism, uh, in particular, some of them have uh, uh, suggested to me very politely and not in these terms that discussion of some of the Jain sources is uh, somewhat uh, superficial. Uh, I mean, probably necessarily superficial. Um, but I thought that it was important. Uh, I'm not a. I wasn't trained in Jain studies. Jainism is a is a is a huge it has a huge literature and a lot of the sources are very difficult uh, to work with and I thought it was important for me to not exclude um, Jain sources from my analysis um, even though I sometimes felt like uh, given my abilities I should have done that um, so um, yeah and and in terms of the kind of arguments and kind of cultural history of a language. Um, I'm uh, pleased that um, that I was beaten to the punchline of, uh, of writing a, a biography of a South Asian language, um, uh, but not by, very much uh, by David Shulman, who 
wrote a, a book called Tamil, a biography that came out about a year before uh, my book. So David's book is also a, uh, a kind of cultural history of the Tamil language that sees, uh, that tries to recuperate um, the critical moments in its history as a, as a literary language, as a language of systematic thought. So, um, so it's not totally without, um, without uh, forerunners. <laughs> so you say in your book that there's a sense in which Prakrit was invented and in particular as a language of power and um, invented in a sort of language order, as you call it, in relationship to Sanskrit. So tell us how this invention began. Who, who was it that was speaking and writing Prakrit originally? Uh, who's the major groups that you're focusing on in your book? Sure. Um, so f- first, I, I need to acknowledge, because I think um, this has been uh, misunderstood slightly, there is some sense in which languages cannot be invented. And Indian theorists of language um, argued this very convincingly, that uh, for language to be communicative at all, the relationship of signifier and signify needs to be, in some sense, always already there. But uh, I'm talking about the use of uh, language and sometimes particular uses of a language uh, generate similar such uses in history. And in that sense, we can speak of a tradition, uh, or in other words, a set of language practices that are related to each other historically. So while the questions of the historical origins of the precise lexical and grammatical forms that constitute the Prakrit language remains a very difficult question, mostly because of the lack of data, but also because there's a real question about what constitutes Prakrit for this purpose. That's not the question that I was interested in, at least in uh, the book. I was interested in the origins of Prakrit as a literary language. Now, here too, we have some conceptual problems, some evidentiary problems, but um, most of the evidence points to two domains, two groups of language users um, for Prakrit at the very early period. So number one, we have the language that was used by Jain communities, uh, especially in Western India. So Jains um, had been preserving uh, the teachings of earlier Jain teachers and scholars in a language called Ardhapagati, an Eastern Middle Indic language. Um, Some people consider it a Prakrit. But uh, starting around the 1st and 2nd century CE, they began to use Prakrit for, well, for new compositions and for commenting on older texts. And so in the book, I talk about the commentarial project associated with this teacher, Padrabahu, but there's a, a number of other examples. So secondly, we have royal courts also in Western India, but specifically in the the Deccan, the kind of region, uh, let's say, I don't know, between the Narmada River and the Kaveri River. Um, So there's an anthology of Prakrit poems called Seven Centuries Setsasai, I mentioned earlier. It's unanimously attributed to uh, a king of the Satavahana dynasty, known as Hala. Now, 
nobody knows uh, exactly when uh, this happened, but the Satavahana dynasty itself existed from the early 1st century BCE to the early 3rd century CE. And their capital, at least in the legends, is said to be uh, Pratishtan or Paitan, uh, which is in Maharashtra, uh, modern-day Maharashtra. And in turn, the Satavahana court is supposed to have hosted a number of well-known Prakrit poets and the dynasties that succeeded the Satavahanas also uh, produced Prakrit poets. And so both of these groups, the kind of Jain monks and the royal courts, um, their use of Prakrit is uh, in some ways continuous with earlier uses of Middle Indic languages. Um, but I argue that around the first and second century CE, we begin to see the use of a literary language that is, well, number one, uh, quite consistent. The forms are basically the same. And number two, its users consistently identify it as Prakrit, uh, which they don't do. So this is the, the first time in which people are saying, I am writing in Prakrit. They don't say that about Pali. They don't say it about Ardhamagadhi. Um and just uh, one very brief note about the so these two communities, Jain uh, teachers, royal courts, they've typically been discussed separately as far as their use of Prakrit is concerned. Uh, I think that there have to have been connections between them. And there's one figure in particular that I've discussed as a missing link between these two communities. Uh, his name is Palitta. Sometimes he's known as Padalipta, uh, but he was a Jain monk. He, um, he wrote a very interesting work on astronomy and calculation called uh, the Jyotish Karandaka. Uh, he wrote it in Prakrit, but he also wrote Prakrit poetry, and he wrote this romance called Tarangavai. And he was said to have been actually a, a poet at Hala's court, the Satavahana court in the Deccan. And a number of the poems in seven centuries are attributed to him. Now, a lot of people have, uh, well, <laughs> I should say the, the one or two people that I've uh, talked about, uh, uh, talked to regarding this uh, question, they, they've kind of been doubtful about the possibility of a Jain monk uh, working at a royal court, uh, but uh, because Jain monks are supposed to, basically supposed to avoid uh, political life entirely. Um, I personally don't see why this shouldn't have happened. And certainly the Jain monks who transmitted these stories about Padlita didn't see much of a problem with it either. So um, so I think this this figure, Padlita, is, is an important um, uh, link between the communities and should probably attract a, a bit more research. Well, let's let's get back to the discussion of, uh, of poetry and, and kavya in a minute. But let's briefly at least talk about the uh, inscriptions uh, and the panegyrics that you talk about in the beginning of your book. So um, you're you're arguing that there's a reason for using certain languages in these uh, inscriptions in uh, rock caves and, and other places. Uh, and one idea that people have floated, you've, you said, is that um, the use of Sanskrit for certain permanent political inscriptions 
that that kind of validates a Brahminical way of life is the norm. And that the early instances of hybridizations where you start to see uh, Prakrit coming in, um, that these are attempts to uh, sort of appropriate Sanskrit and to, to gain power um, by, by doing so. I think I've, at least that's how I understand the position that you've set forward in your book that others have have stated. And you're, you're arguing in some ways that this isn't quite right. So uh, maybe you can speak to that. Tell me if I've gotten that position right and, and what your understanding is about these inscriptions. Yeah, absolutely. So the reason why I was looking at these inscriptions in the first place is because I have the idea that Sanskrit and Prakrit emerge kind of as a, as a pair of languages um, around the same time. Uh, and obviously, Sanskrit had been in use for a much longer period. But starting in the first and second century, we, we start to see certain languages becoming public languages, becoming the languages of uh, inscriptions, political inscriptions, and languages of, of uh, a new form of, of literature that didn't exist before. So, um, so I try to look at the uh, languages of inscriptions, uh, mostly in, in the Deccan. Um, so this would include the inscriptions of the Satavahanas themselves uh, and some of their uh, allies and opponents. And basically we see, um, let's say, two um, predominant uses of uh, language in these inscriptions. One is people are using... Uh, Middle Indic languages. So people don't write inscriptions in Prakrit. Um, and I think this is an important point. Um, they are writing inscriptions in a Middle Indic language. And this is especially true of the Satavahanas. Um, but um, that Middle Indic language uh, differs in important respects from the language that I call Prakrit. And uh, on the other side, you have people experimenting with the use of Sanskrit as a inscriptional language. And people often uh, give uh, Rudradaman's Junagar inscription from 150 CE as the first major Sanskrit inscription. Uh, but in fact, there are earlier Sanskrit inscriptions uh, from... Uh, this dynasty called the Kshatrapas or, um, or the, some, yeah, sometimes called the Kshaharatas, the Shakas. Um, but they start to use um, Sanskrit in their inscriptions um, starting, I would say, around the 70s or the 80s um, of, the, of the first century. So, uh, and the interesting thing about both of these sets of inscriptions, the ones that are in Sanskrit or the ones that are in a kind of like mixture of Sanskrit and Middle Indic, and the ones that are just in Middle Indic, is that uh, they're extremely literary. Um, they are imaginative. They use lots of figures of speech. Uh, it's, a to it's a total qualitative difference from earlier inscriptions, especially from the inscriptions of Ashoka. So if you read these Middle Indic inscriptions at Nasik from the first century, uh, it's to totally obvious that you're in a different discursive world where people try to make claims about their political power in a language 
um, that was self-consciously expressive and, and literary. Um, so to get back to this question of why Sanskrit begins to emerge as a, as a public and political language in this period, uh, which the question of the emergence of, of Prakrit is, is linked to in, a, in important ways. Um, yeah, you put your finger on it uh, exactly. Um, I have been dissatisfied with, um, with the argument that says, uh, well, it can take a, a number of forms. Number one, it's uh, that Sanskrit is the work of Brahmins, and wherever you see Sanskrit, there are Brahmins. And uh, I think that just from a kind of logical point of view, this is um, untenable because, number one, uh, we see Sanskrit being used um, by people who are not Brahmins, um, and including uh, Buddhists uh, in this period. Um, and... Uh, we also see, you know, very Brahminical ideas uh, about the about the importance of Vedic sacrifices, the importance of the Vedic world order, the importance of the kind of social order uh, that you find in the Smritis. These are expressed in languages other than Sanskrit, so in Middle Indic languages. So uh, it just it doesn't hold any water uh, at all for me. Um, the uh, some sometimes people use this category of prestige. So Sanskrit was a prestige language, uh, and the Brahmins were the kind of arbiters of, of this prestige. Sometimes they use the uh, kind of quasi-Viberian category of legitimation that Sanskrit provided legitimacy um, for people who wanted to be seen as uh, legitimate rulers. So this is how people square the circle of the fact that the earliest Sanskrit inscriptions are from dynasties that had literally like just ridden into India on horses a generation before from the plains of Central Asia. And suddenly they're writing Sanskrit inscriptions. And so people have said, well, clearly they are in need of legitimacy and uh, Sanskrit serves as uh, legitimacy. But um, uh, I... Uh, I disagree with that as well. And yeah, what I say in the book is not super new. I mean, I was following uh, Shelton Pollock's critique of legitimation theory in this respect, but um, I, I thought that I had offered a kind of new argument about Sanskrit as a, as a link language. In other words, these groups, uh, these Shaka Kshatrapa groups that had just come to India and established these large uh, transregional kingdoms in northwestern India, that they, more than legitimacy uh, and more than prestige, they needed a kind of uh, a language that, um, that could serve the purposes of uh, communication across, you know, between, you know, people who spoke Gandhari, people who spoke Greek, people who spoke... Um, uh, the Shaka language and people who spoke various other forms of Middle Indic and Sanskrit was just the kind of lowest common denominator. And uh, I learned to, uh, to my uh, surprise, but uh, also I was pleasantly surprised that uh, Jean Fiozat, a great French scholar came to a similar conclusion. So uh, this happened after I learned this, after I, I wrote the book, but uh, 
oh well. But uh, he, he wrote uh, in an article actually about uh, Sanskrit in Vietnam uh, that um, I'll just translate the, the quote that I found here. Before the use of Persian and then English, it was only Sanskrit, which without being the language of all, was the only language in India which was known to every everywhere to learned people and everywhere in the same form fixed by traditional instruction. And I think this basically hits the nail on the head. Uh, so when it comes to what this has to do with Prakrit, I think that however we think of the expansion of Sanskrit into new domains of use in the early common era, we definitely need to consider that it was accompanied by the expansion of other languages as well. So it was not a, a zero-sum game, even though in certain um, discourses like political inscriptions, uh, Sanskrit definitely did replace Middle Indic. But uh, during the first few centuries CE, we have a, this remarkable explosion of literature and inscriptions in Sanskrit, in Prakrit, in Tamil, and um, you know exactly what is accounting for this textual explosion. Um, uh, nobody has tried to, I'm going to, I think that, that, uh, there, there is an expansion of manuscript culture, um, and maybe the institutionalization of certain forms of textual learning. But, uh, this is something that I hope to pursue in a future project. Mm. Okay. Well, let's let's then turn back to Kavya or the poetic traditions that you alluded to, talked about earlier. So uh, you argue in your book that it's important for understanding the relationship between Prakrit and here, Prakrit in the sense you're using it, not the, the Middle Indic sense, uh, between Prakrit and Sanskrit. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about what Kavya is, who who is writing it, where they're writing it, who the audience is. Uh, so um, there's this collection of the the seven centuries of 700 uh, Prakrit verses, and you you tell this story about uh, the composition of this uh, supposed um, of this collection, the the supposed composition or collection at least. Um, so maybe you can talk also about that particular collection and what that story tells us about Prakrit. Yeah. Um, so Kavya is, um, I guess, the you could call it art literature or uh, refined uh, literature. So, uh, so the word literature is, is used in English to sometimes refer to anything that is written. Um, and that doesn't work both because uh, there are kind of forms of literature that are not written in uh, in pre-modern India, but also because uh, this this discourse, Kavya, really refers to a specific set of practices uh, where you kind of intensify language by means of ornamentation. Uh, it's often focused on uh, certain themes. The uh, predominant theme is, is love, um, but... Um, but there's, uh, it's also about uh, kind of political visions. Um, so Kavya, I, I've taken to describing Kavya as a, as a movement that picks up in the first and second century where 
uh, people are writing these uh, poems usually in in verse. Sometimes uh, you get prose um, caveats later on, um, but um, they're expressive and they're in a, a range of languages. And um, so I, I mentioned Tamil. Um, exactly what the connections are between Tamil poetry uh, of the early common era and Sanskrit and Prakrit uh, poetry, it's uh, a little bit hard to say, but um, I think that certainly by the third or fourth century, uh, everyone knows that there is this discourse of kavya, of, of literature, and the principal languages in which people are composing Kavya are Sanskrit and Prakrit. And I had argued that there's, uh, that Sanskrit and Prakrit constitute, uh, within this system of, uh, of literature, they constitute, uh, a, uh, a pair, um, that they co-figure each other in the sense that uh, Sanskrit is imagined to be what Prakrit is not. Prakrit is imagined to be what Sanskrit is not. Um, and I don't want to press this too far um, because I think that there are other reasons why one would choose Sanskrit or, or Prakrit. But uh, among the reasons are, is, is a kind of set of associations that people have about these languages where Sanskrit is a, is a language uh, of uh, precision and um, systematic thought, um, whereas Prakrit is a language of love, of kind of spontaneous expression, um, and uh, and I have tried to see a particular kind of poetics that you get in Prakrit literature as opposed to Sanskrit literature, at least in this early period where Sanskrit literature is ornate, um, kind of. Uh, elaborated uh, samskrita in the sense that you you uh, put a lot of um, effort into it, whereas the poetics of Prakrit is um, is language that is suggestive and um, and pregnant, but uh, it wears its uh, artifice on its sleeve in a, in a sense. So um, so it's important if you're writing a, a, a Prakrit poem. Uh, you want it to at least seem like it's something that somebody would actually say, uh, which is uh, not necessarily the case with Sanskrit. So they kind of co-figure, uh, Sanskrit and Prakrit co-figure each other in that way, that they have these um, uh, juxtaposed poetics. Um, but the reason why I don't want to overemphasize that is that they are part of the same system and we have a very kind of fluid um uh, transmission of ideas and motifs and terms from Sanskrit and to, into Prakrit and vice versa. So, you know, if you read Kalidasa, the classical, uh, most classical Sanskrit poet uh, of the fifth century, you'll see lots of phrases that uh, appear in earlier Prakrit literature. You'll see lots of ideas and motifs that appear in earlier Prakrit literature. To come to the uh, uh, what this earlier Prakrit literature is, you had asked about the um, seven centuries, this collection of 700 Prakrit verses. Uh, I had mentioned that the tradition, and when I say tradition, I mean um, commentaries on the text, as well as there's a kind of uh, 
biographical literature that in uh, in uh, that is produced by the Jain community of um, of North India, starting around the twelfth and thirteenth century. Um, these uh, these sources say that uh, the anthology Seven Centuries was compiled by a king named Hala, and they often mention that um, that he did this in a, at a time when uh, of extreme inspiration. So everyone around him was just spontaneously composing uh, proper poems. And sometimes they will specifically mention a few court poets. Um, sometimes they'll mention the fact that he um, incentivized people to, uh, to write proper uh, poetry. So he he offered a huge sum of money, and uh, people started submitting uh, their uh, Prakrit poems. But um, in any case, we have this anthology. Interesting thing about the this so the anthology it's I think probably one of the earliest Prakrit uh, works of Prakrit literature that survives to us um, today. We have it was enormously popular. Um, lots of people read it. There are at least a dozen commentaries on it. And some of these commentaries, in addition to explaining the intricacies of each individual verse, they'll often attribute each individual verse to a specific author. So we get some sense that it is a community project, but um, we yeah, it's, it's difficult to Im- imagine exactly what this community was, were they all court poets, um, a uh, a text that I have just translated. Um, uh, it's uh, will appear in the Murti Classical Library of of India. It's called Lilavai, and it's a romance about um, this figure named Hala. Uh, but it kind of imagines um, some of the authors who are named in these commentaries, like Kumarla and Portissa, uh, it imagines that these people were, so uh, Kumarla was a, a, an advisor to Hala, um, Portissa was another advisor to Hala, so it kind of makes up a story about these uh, figures. But um, but uh, yeah, we, do, we don't uh, really know. And we um, there are also lots and lots of um, poets whose work only survives in later quotations or in fragments. So we, uh, so we have this anthology, but um, which is, again, if I, if you put a gun to my head, I would say that it was compiled maybe around the second century in uh, the Western Deccan, uh, probably around Pratishtana or uh, Paitan, maybe a little bit earlier. Um, but there's uh, there's a lot of Prakrit literature um, that I would say dates from around the same time that we just don't have. So let's talk a little bit about the features of Prakrit in terms of um, the qualities of it, which are relevant for its use in poetry. Of course, we're we're talking about Prakrit poetry in English. But um, poetry is more than just the the meaning of the verses. It's also the sound. And as you note in the book, these um, these poems would have been, um, these verses would have been uh, recited or, or sung in a in a public context. So there's a, a, a 
certain qualities that Procreate is supposed to have. Uh, so maybe you could give some examples of what it would sound like in, in this sort of spoken form um, and why, why this is supposed to be so uh, particularly appropriate for the kinds of functions that you've, you've described it to have. Yeah. Um, there's, I should find a, a good example. Um, maybe I'll, I'll give one example uh, from, uh, I, from this collection. It's, I, I don't, it's an unpublished collection, but it's called the uh, Resika Prakashana, the brilliance of the connoisseurs. Um, and I, it has a, a few very nice um, uh, verses about uh, Prakrit. Um, but uh, one of them, I'll give the translation first. Uh, Prakrit poetry is like a beautiful courtesan, erotic, alluring, full of rasa. Uh, I'll have to explain what rasa means. It's a delicate, provoking excitement and desire. It captivates your heart. Uh, and that in uh, the Prakrit that reads, Singar bhava suha a sarasa varasundri vakso mali, kordamano raha janani hara imaram pa utti hu. So, the, one of the things about Prakrit is that people often comment on is its uh, delicacy um, and its uh, mellifluousness and uh, this is a good opportunity for me to say that Prakrit and Sanskrit are actually quite similar. Um, the grammatical structure, the kind of morphology is um, quite similar. Major changes are in the realm of phonology. So basically, Prakrit has, um, has a lot of uh, lenition, the consonant are weakened a lot. So, um, so you often end up with words like ma'a, uh, which, um, you know, is just basically two vowels next to each other. Uh, whereas in Sanskrit, this could be mada, uh, meaning uh, intoxication. It could be uh, murta, dead. It could be murga, deer. Um, so there's uh, uh, it's uh, f uh, phonologically kind of underdetermined, and I think that this is part of this uh, delicacy that people uh, identified. Um, it, um, yeah, and there are kind of forms of uh, there. There are lots of like the sh sounds of Sanskrit and the. Uh, that people sometimes consider to be quite harsh are just not there in Prakrit. So this is another way in which Prakrit was uh, seen to be uh, more delicate and therefore more appropriate to a certain way of thinking towards erotic poetry. Um, and also um, it's, uh, it had this association, uh, which I, I kind of wish that I delved into this, association a bit more in my book, but it was associated with women, right? And so you very often hear things like, well, uh, women uh, speak Prakrit in Sanskrit plays, um, or 
women have to speak Prakrit because they are not given a Sanskrit education or something like that. Um, in the kind of literary imaginary, it was uh, it, women were considered to have a special relationship uh, to, to Prakrit. And therefore, if you wanted to speak to women or you wanted to compose poetry that women would enjoy, you should do so in Prakrit. I think this is a kind of totally notional thing in the sense that um, you know, we do have a few women poets in seven centuries, um, including a woman named uh, Andhra Lakshmi. Um, but uh, yeah, obviously, <laughs> as in the rest of pre-modern India, in India, most uh, of the poets whose work survives are uh, men. So uh, it's uh, so exactly what to make of this association is uh, is uh, still something that uh, requires some thought. Mm-hmm. Let's. There's a lot here. There's there's a lot about um, Prakrit and its relationship to other languages, its relationship to Jains, as, as we mentioned earlier, that we could dive into. But in the time we have left, let's talk a little bit about its role in plays in pre-modern India. You you noticed or you noted this just a minute ago about this idea that women are the ones that should be speaking Prakrit in plays, and so. Plays in pre-modern India are written and presented in, in multiple languages, and there are treatises like the Natya Shastra, who, which explain who it is that's supposed to speak Sanskrit and Prakrit in a, in a production. So what do these sorts of things tell us about Prakrit and how it is understood at this time? Yeah, the, uh, the plays, which are... <laughs> I read a, an article, it's an old article, um, but I read it recently, uh, that argued that we should stop calling them Sanskrit plays because the majority of the dialogue in these plays is actually in Prakrit. Um, now, this is true of some authors more than others. So, for instance, Kalidasa has a lot of Prakrit-speaking characters. Pavabhuti has uh, fewer Prakrit-speaking characters, but uh, it's exactly as you said, uh, the stage play in pre-modern India was multilingual. Uh, there are some characters who speak Sanskrit, and there are other characters who speak a range of languages that um, that are, are called Prakrit. Now, in effect, um, I mean, this is a, a complicated question because the, the languages that you see, say, if you look at the Murchakatika, uh, an early play, um, uh, some of the commentators have identified close to a dozen different uh, languages in it. Now, these languages are all very close to each other. Um, and I think that uh, for an audience that was educated in Sanskrit and could speak and understand Sanskrit, um, hearing these different varieties of language would be be something, I mean, it's a little bit more than hearing different um, pronunciations of English, but, um, you know, I, I think of, uh, yeah, when I was living in uh, in Italy, I uh, had a Spanish-speaking friend who would, you know, talk to people in Spanish, and they would respond in Italian, and it was fine, and I think that that's kind of what we're supposed to imagine. Um, but, uh 
the interesting thing about the Natya Shastra is that um, is that it is drawing on different traditions of thought about language. So um, there's it's on the one hand it's drawing on this idea that uh, languages are assigned based on the character type and uh, and the uh, names for these different languages are kind of based on regions, although their connection with regions is uh, pretty loose and maybe totally notional. But this is where you get terms like Shaurasaini, the language of Shurasena or Mathura, uh, Magadhi, the language of uh, Magadha or uh, Eastern India. Um, yeah, uh, uh, what would be other examples? Avanti, the language of, uh, or Avantika, the language of, um, of uh, around uh, Ujjaini in uh, Madhya Pradesh. So you, uh, but really these, uh, so we have these kind of conventional theatrical languages that are identified by their uh, place of origin. But in addition to that, uh, we have this other tradition that is uh, that says that uh, that there's a basically a, a higher order distinction between Sanskrit and Prakrit, and therefore languages like Shaurasaini, uh, Magadhi, etc., are varieties of Prakrit. Now, this is not actually explicit in the Natya Shastra. Uh, other people make this explicit, and I think nowadays most people think of Shaurasaini and Magadhi as varieties of Prakrit. But it's important to mention that the that the Natya Shastra, at the time that it was composed, uh, thought of the opposition between Sanskrit and Prakrit on the one hand, and the opposition between Sanskrit and Shaurasaini, Magadhi, uh, Avanti, and these other languages uh, on the other hand. And uh, it's only by kind of uh, superimposing these two classifications on top of each other that uh, we can speak of Shaurasaini as Prakrit. And in fact, Dundin in his uh, uh, mirror of literature, the Kavya Dasha, which he writes around the year 700. Um, when he talks about Prakrit, he's very clear that Prakrit is this literary language that's used for independent literary works like the seven centuries, like the building of the bridge, the Setu Bandha. And he says as a uh, after that, that, okay, in stage plays too, uh, languages like Shaurasaini can be considered Prakrit. So this is a kind of secondary usage of, of Prakrit. Um, and, uh, uh, well, I'll, I'll leave it at that, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, there's quite a lot in, in your book, and unfortunately we just don't have time to, to delve into all of it. You also talk about this sort of discussion of the grammatical analysis of Prakrit, how it gets modeled into to other languages like Kannada and Telugu. Um, there, there's quite a lot in the in the book. And the thing I would just note too, which is interesting about your book is it is, um, uh, how would you characterize the, the publication model of the book? You can download it online, correct? Right. Yeah, it's open access. Um... Open access, yeah. So if, we, if uh, listeners are interested in the, the book, it's quite easy to get. They, they, can, they can pay you for your time or they can just, uh, you know, in your efforts, they can also uh, download it open access on the, the publisher's website. To be clear, um, 
I am not getting paid <laughs> from. Oh, okay, fair, fair. They can pay the publisher. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the, right, <laughs> but um, the, in other words, there's different models of uh, of of download available for this book, which I think is a is a nice model for um, for scholarly uh, work that is getting to be more popular for good reasons. So um, as we're we're running out of time here, I'll just leave things at that. Unless there's anything else about the book that we haven't discussed that you think it would be really important uh, for our listeners to hear? Uh, no, I, I appreciate your, your questions. Uh, of course, there's a lot more to talk about. But um, but yeah, people, as you said, people are uh, totally free and uh, welcome to download the book and read it. Great. Well, uh, let's close by just asking you what you're working on now. You'd mentioned a couple of things uh, throughout the course of the interview that you're working on. Uh, are you extending the work that you've done on Procrit? Are you moving to other topics? What's occupying your time? Yeah, so I mentioned that I have just completed a translation of a, of a uh, romance, a Procrit romance called Li Lavai, um, written by an author named uh, Kouhula, probably in the 8th century or so. Um, so that will appear in the Murti Classical Library of India later this year. Um, in terms of Prakrit related projects, yeah, I've been working on this, uh, on a re-edition and translation of the only work of poetics that is composed in Prakrit. It's called the Mirror of Ornaments, Alankara Dapparna. Um, I have a kind of crazy theory that, uh, so there's a very close relationship between, uh, this work and the earliest work of poetics in Sanskrit, uh, which is Bamha's. Ornament of Literature, Kavyalankara. And uh, so it's a very tricky question to figure out um, which of these texts was borrowing from the other. But um, yeah, re read that book uh, to see what I have to say about that. And otherwise, I mean, the major project at the moment is, is about uh, theories of context in uh, Indian thought. Uh, so how context helps people understand uh, sentences, the ways in which uh, contextual features clarify the meanings of, of words and uh, basically the role of, of context in apprehending uh, the meanings of, of sentences. And so there's a huge amount of discussion about this in uh, Sanskrit philosophical texts, and I'm trying to open that up. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And this is in, uh, in Mamsa in particular, is that correct, or more broadly? It's um, I'm starting in in Mimamsa, so the the major Mimamsikas who or Mimamsa thinkers that uh, address this issue of context are I mean it's built into the Mimamsa project, which is a hermeneutical or exegetical project, but uh, there are some particular thinkers who uh, lay emphasis on the idea that uh, that language means something only in context. And uh, those thinkers are Prabhakara and Shalikanatha. So they're very important thinkers for this project. But I'm also hoping to go into Vyakarana, into Sanskrit grammar and uh, other traditions. Great. Well, we'll look forward to seeing where that project takes you. And uh, thank you again for your time today. And again, for our listeners, you can download uh, Andrew Allett's book online. We'll have links to that in the uh, show notes. And thanks again for your time, Andrew. Thank you, Malcolm.